As I have mentioned before, these two verses form a final incentive in the book. To hear God when he speaks in covenant worship because of the superiority of the new covenant. Remember that these verses are the climax of the sermon that is the book of Hebrews. Here all of the threads of teaching woven throughout the book are tied up. The major doctrines are all here. The importance of hearing God when he speaks. The superiority of Jesus Christ and the better new covenant he established. And the consequent call for believers to endure until they reach this God through Christ in heaven. This climax is presented in the form of two pictures of mountains. Each is described in seven phrases. The two mountains are compared. They have some ways alike, and they are contrasted. In some ways, they are different. They are respectively, of course, Mount Sinai and Mount Zion. The first, Mount Sinai, is the place where God met Israel to form them into a nation by covenant and to receive worship from them. The preeminent act in this meeting was God speaking to them. The overall impression of this description in our verses is one of terror. The second mountain is Mount Zion. This is the heavenly hill of God where he meets with his people in new covenant worship. Jesus Christ reigns there as prophet, priest, and king from the throne. And he leads this worship. According to Hebrews 2.12, he sings the praises of God. And according to verse 24 here, his blood speaks. Now mountains, you will recall, are the expected place to meet God for both covenant making and worship. So when the old covenant people of God came to Mount Sinai, as verse 18 says, we and we, the new covenant people of God, come to Mount Zion, we should expect to find at this scene an assembly, an assembly for worship a gathering for religious ceremony. The significance is clear. Not only are these two images real places, real mountains, but they point to two covenants, two mediators, the law and the gospel and two worship services. They are not identical. They are not identical. One is old, one is new. One is type and shadow, one is fulfillment and reality. Sinai is unbearably frightening. God there is present but obscured. His voice is overwhelming. Zion is also awe-inspiring. Yes, even frightening, as we will see. But it is also a place of joy. It's the place of festival. 
And God is not darkened there. He is clearly seen in Jesus Christ. And his voice speaks, but it speaks peace through the shed blood of Christ. This place, you will recall from chapter 10, verse 19, is the true holy of holies. The physical one on the earth was never the true place of worship. It was a place of true worship. God was there. He manifested himself, but it was never the ultimate. It was a pointer to heaven, to the reality. So we today worship at the true mountain, the true temple, the true tabernacle, and God meets with us. If you have eyes of faith, you see it now. We are there now. Have you come today waiting for heaven to open to your eyes of faith so that you can join the ongoing worship of God? I hope after last week's sermon, that's at least a little part of why you're here today. This picture teaches us that God is specially present in worship and the central act of worship is God speaking. Now this will be confirmed in the verses that follow because these following verses are the application to the truth of verses 18 to 24. This is the doctrine. Last week was doctrine. This week is, well, there'll be a bit more doctrine, but this is more application. This is how do we respond to that truth? And the application will be made from another pair, not a pair of mountains, but a pair of speeches. Now the first speech is God's voice in verse 25. The second is God's voice in verse 26. In verse 25, we will see that God's voice is present now. God is, so here's our first point. God is speaking now. God now speaks, present tense. The second point will be, God will speak again a final time. God will speak again a final time. First, God is speaking now. Let's look first at the truth of this statement. The idea that God constantly speaks into his creation is found throughout the Bible. Francis Schaeffer famously and simply put it this way. He is there and he is not silent. God is here and God is not silent. He is not absent from his world and he does not keep quiet. He speaks through the creation and our consciences by way of general revelation about himself, but he also speaks by way of special revelation. Well, what would that mean? Well, think about the beginning of Hebrews chapter 1. Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. There's God speaking. But in these last days, the last days of the time from the first coming of Christ to his return, in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. Of course, Jesus has now gone into heaven. But God is still speaking. 
and he does this through his word. Hebrews has repeatedly told us that God the Father speaks in his word, that God the Son speaks in his word, and especially there's an emphasis in this book that the Holy Spirit speaks whenever the Holy Scriptures are read and correctly explained or taught or preached. This is why we say with the past saints that the preaching of the Word of God is the Word of God. Not because we make ourselves to be gods. What a horrid blasphemy. Or have any confidence in ourselves. But God has chosen to accompany his word with his spirit so that when it is truly proclaimed, it is not mere man who is speaking, it is God who is speaking. God himself is the preacher. And this point is affirmed yet again in these verses, not only in verse 24, that reminds us that Jesus' blood is speaking, present tense, but also in verse 25, see that you do not refuse him who is speaking, present tense. Well, pastor, that was just, you know, the inspired writer, um, God was just speaking when he was writing this. No. No. God was speaking through his word then as it was penned or spoken or preached, and he continues to do that. Later on in this verse, God is warning. He warns them. All of these are in the present tense, and all of them are, remember, in the context of public worship. God didn't stop speaking through his word when this sermon ended. No, even today, faith comes by hearing, and hearing through the word of, not me, the word of Christ. Christ is the preacher. Romans 10, 17. Jesus and his blood are the ultimate teachers. This truth that God is still speaking is the foundation for every other argument in the book. If God isn't speaking words of life, then surely death will reign in us. I mean, who else are we going to go to for the words of life? I can't give you words of life and make them active in you. You can't for me. Only God can do that. We are doomed and damned if God isn't the speaker. That's good. That's good. Simply impossible for anyone to be converted, changed, saved, have anything good to them unless the power comes from God. Amen. So when he speaks, he speaks. <laughs> he is speaking. When his word is read, when his word is prayed, when his word is sung, when his word is taught, God is speaking. God finds his voice, we might say, in the word of God. So first, by way of application, and we won't have uses at the end, I'm going to thread them through the sermon. I simply want you to believe God is speaking now in this 
time and place and era, and in this very moment as we look at his word. Here's the second point under God is speaking now. We see from these verses not only the truth of this, but there's a duty that arises from this truth. This statement is true, and therefore there's a certain duty that comes to us. Our duty is put in negative terms in verse 25. We are not to refuse him, or later in verse 25, we are not to reject him. It's very obvious that the preacher thinks not only that God is speaking, but that you are all hearing him. And so the question becomes, what is your response? Will you refuse or reject him? The word for refuse is related to the description in verse 19. It's a form of the same word where it said, um, the people heard the voice of God, right? And then here's what they did. They begged that no further messages be spoken to them. That's refusing. Nope, don't want to hear that anymore. That's enough. I reject that. I don't believe that. I don't want that. I refuse that word of God. He is speaking, yes. I've heard him, yes. I don't want it. That's, that's refusal. That's to say, please don't say any more to me. I've had enough. What I've heard, I don't like. That is what we're warned against. We must not respond that way. If we were to flip it around and put it in positive terms, it would be, of course, we ought to believe or accept or say yes to God as he speaks. That's, of course, what the writer to the Hebrews calls saving faith. Whenever God speaks, including right now, he lays a choice before you. You may refuse him, or you may believe him. You may reject him, or you may accept him. There really isn't an option to simply pretend he isn't speaking, or to ignore his words, or forget them. To forget them is to reject his warning. It's to, to not think that when God himself speaks to you, it's not important enough for you to pay attention. Really? He who made you just with the breath of his mouth and all other things and you can't listen to him? How wicked, how foolish must be your heart. And the word is warning. Did you catch that word? It's repeated. You see, this warning is part of the content of what Jesus' blood speaks. Now, so much of what Jesus' blood speaks is soothing. Think about the hymn that summarizes it this way. This is what Jesus' blood preaches. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins, and sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. Oh, it is soothing to hear the message of forgiveness. That there is relief from the judge of all men. 
That there is salvation and hope and righteousness. That we will see God. That we have an inheritance. That there is a kingdom that we're a part of. All of these things. Those are all soothing truths. And they're, they're real. And they're part of the message. But they're not the complete message. There's a warning part to this message as well. You see... All of those good things only come to those who do not refuse. Only to those who believe. For everyone else, there is simply left a warning. So next, see from the last half of verse 25, the motive to obey this duty. God is continuing to speak. That's true. We have a duty, which is to hear him, to believe, to not reject him. And here's a motive to obey it. And this motive is the warning. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape. Much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. Old Covenant Israel refused to listen to God who spoke to them on earth from Mount Sinai. They did not believe or put into practice what he demanded of them. And so they did not escape. They, as a generation, with very few exceptions, perished in the wilderness. They never reached the promised land. Now, too often, we tend to reason wrongly from this. In fact, we, get it, we tend to get it exactly backwards. We say, well, that was the time of law. This is now the time of gospel and grace. And yes, it is. <laughs> but surely the word God speaks now is one only of salvation. It's one only of blessing. No. <laughs> it contains a warning also. And he speaks it from heaven. So that it is a more weighty word than the word he spoke from Mount Sinai on earth. My friends, if you refuse to hear God, you are not in less peril than Israel. You are in greater peril. You are in greater danger. If they didn't escape, how can you possibly imagine that you will escape? Jesus taught this same truth during his earthly ministry. The principle was that more spiritual light brought more responsibility, not less. The greater the knowledge, the greater the potential judgment. So he said to his hearers in Capernaum, on judgment day, it will be more tolerable for Sodom than for you. Why? Because his Jewish listeners were more sexually perverse than the Sodomites? That would seem impossible. No, that's not, that's not the reason. No, because the message and mighty works of Christ were so clear. In other words, the blessings of the new covenant were all around them. And so great responsibility, greater responsibility came with that, those things. The blessings under the blessings of the gospel under the new covenant make men more accountable, not less. 
If Israel refused him who spoke from earth, from the old covenant, and didn't escape, why do we think we will escape when he speaks from heaven in the new covenant? All of this, you who are Christians, is motivation to keep listening to God and not to apostatize, not to put your hands over your ears and say, I've had enough. I need to go live my life now. I will be my own master. And for those of you who aren't Christians, you need to hear God because the warning is real as we're about to hear more about. So do not leave Christ. Do not turn away. Keep listening. Keep believing. Keep obeying. Well, here's our second point. God will speak again a final time. God is speaking now. But there will come a time when God will speak a final time. The truth of this statement is found in verses 26 and 27. At that time his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth but also the heavens. This indicates the removal of things that are shaken, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. At Sinai, in one place, for a short while, God spoke and the mountain shook. Earthquakes and fire and darkness and a trumpet accompanied God's speech. And so it will be on the last day. These verses tell of God's final speech on the final day, judgment day. His voice will once again shake created things. But this time it won't be just one little mountain or one big mountain or one range of mountains. It will be the entire universe. The power of his speech will undo all of fallen creation. It will be reminiscent of Sinai. 1 Thessalonians 4 tells us that Jesus Christ will descend with a shout of command. There he is speaking. And there will be angels and the sound of a trumpet. Fire, like at Sinai, will also be prominent. But this time it will be, according to 2 Peter 3, it will destroy the old heavens and earth, and it will lay bare all the evil works of men. You see, Sinai is just a type of the final judgment. Sinai's type will be fulfilled at the coming of the Lord. The entire creation will be shaken. That is, it will be undone. And only what is unshakable will remain. And all of this by the word, the voice, the speech of God. Two mountains, two speeches. Now, what are the things in verse 27 that cannot be shaken? What will remain after the purging fire? Verse 28 answers a kingdom. That's shorthand. That's summary. The kingdom is the rule of God through Christ in a new heavens and a new earth. In other words, all the fullness of the blessings of the new covenant. Salvation, an inheritance, a better country, seeing the face of God, on and on the list could go that he's 
as he's described this throughout the book of Hebrews. Everything that God has established through Christ's perfect work, that will remain. And these will all become ours. This is unimaginable. They will become ours. They are God's and they will be ours. Because we are united by faith to Jesus Christ. We will receive them as the gift of grace from our Lord. Now our text tells us that there are two duties that arise from this statement. Just like there was a, one duty earlier, not to refuse to hear God's voice. There's a, there are two duties. Knowing that God will one day speak, as it were, for a final time. What are those? Well, the first is found at the beginning of verse 28. Therefore, let us be grateful. If this is true, if everything's going to be destroyed, except for us, by the grace of God, then let us be grateful. Literally, it's have grace. So this is a call to the thankfulness that comes from knowing that we are the recipients of God's mercy and grace. If you know what you deserve and what God has rescued you from, then surely the only right response to salvation is thankfulness. When we see that we have an unshakable salvation, gratefulness follows. You know, it's warnings like this and the duty of being grateful that help us to put our lives in perspective. These verses remind us not to get too caught up in the day-to-day -day disappointments. Frankly, the vast majority of it is just trivial. And we are too often trivial people who care about inconsequential things. When we are destined to be heirs of the entire universe and the kingdom of Jesus Christ. All of these things will become ours. And so um, we should put off our day-to-day -day disappointments. Quit murmuring. Stop being discontent. Because, frankly, those are, those are big sins. Those are great sins. Those are large sins against the backdrop of so great a salvation. Here's the second duty that arises from this truth of God speaking a final time one day. And that is that we ought to offer to God acceptable worship. You see that um, at the end of verse 28. And, and thus, let us offer to God. So let us be grateful. Let us offer to God acceptable worship. Now, again, given the context that these are two worship mountains, these are two assemblies that meet together for worship, we aren't surprised that our duty here is about worship. Heaven is open. We are now assembled as the people of God. And we are worshiping him. So, of course, for all of these blessings, we should want to continue to and improve our worship. But notice, this isn't a demand for just any kind of worship. This is a duty for acceptable worship. Acceptable worship. The word simply means approved. Approved by who? 
You? Me? Our culture? God alone. God alone can define and approve of his worship. Who else is even remotely capable of understanding what he deserves and what is his due? God alone defines acceptable, defines approved. Well, how does the Lord define it? Well, he defines it with three words in our verse. By three words. The first two are found in the next phrase, with reverence and awe. Now, reverence is exactly what most of you think it is. It's godly fear. It's piety. It's respect proper to our majestic God. It's an interesting word that's used in ordinary Greek to describe the scrupulous care with which a person would handle a priceless vase. I have this very special gift. And here it is. We don't go, oh, yeah, okay. No, no, no. With reverence, we take it. We are careful. We make sure one hand's underneath. We don't make a sudden movement. We look what's around us. We take care. That's what this reverence is. We come into the presence of God with care. So acceptable worship is devout, alert, precise. Now the second word, so for our, word, for our worship to be acceptable to God, we must be reverent. The second word is awe. We must worship God with reverence and awe. Now we often use the word as a an immediate synonym for reverence. And it does, uh, and some translations of the word mean that. This is not that word. This is a different word. In fact, this is the only place in the New Testament this word is used. And it always means, uh, both here and in extra biblical literature, terror or dread. This is way beyond respect. This is shaking in your boots. It's a strong word that reminds us of the holiness and otherness of God when we encounter him. And we are encountering him right now. When Isaiah saw the Lord on the throne in the temple, does that, does that imagery sound familiar? How does he respond? With reverence? Yes. But with fear. <laughs> He says, woe is me. I am lost. I am undone. In other words, I'm going to die. I, I'm going to die. I'm just going to be completely undone. I, I can't stand in the presence of, of this kind of majesty. It's not just respect. When the Apostle John saw Jesus Christ, when he was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day in Revelation chapter 1, was he merely polite? No, John said, I fell at his feet as though dead. 
brothers and sisters, you and I know almost none of this, I fear. We live in a, a silly entertainment age. We don't come into the presence of God. We don't even believe that we are. And then once we learn it, we don't, we don't understand the greatness of the God in whose presence we are. And, and we simply don't fear. But we ought to. We, we ought to. It's right here. Coming acceptably into the recognized near presence of God includes reverence and fear and one more thing. And that's found in the word thus <laughs> in the middle of the verse. And thus let us, well, what does thus point back to? It points back to gratitude, to thankfulness. It points back to joy. It points back to the festival that we're in. Yes, we're reverent. Yes, we're even fearful if we're wise. But we're right with God. He's not just our maker. He is our savior. And so we are thankful. We are delighted. We are overjoyed. You see, all men owe God reverence because he's their maker and their judge. But Christians who have received or experienced the salvific blessings of the better covenant in Jesus Christ, they have reason, you and I have reason, to actually rejoice in God's presence. So like the psalmist in Psalm 2, we worship the Lord, and there are three words that describe it there. And you already know what they are, because they're here in Hebrews. We worship the Lord in fear, and we rejoice with trembling. That ought to be what our worship services are characterized by. Fear, <coughs> reverence, trembling, rejoicing, thankfulness. This is acceptable worship. This is our duty. You see, it balances, it recognizes properly the holiness and the greatness of God and his tender mercies to us in Jesus Christ. So it's not, well, you, can, you should either be reverent or you may be joyful. No, you, you must be both. And if you're a Christian, you have good reason to be both, to respect and thank God both. Now, one final, one final point. Um, before, I'm sorry, one, one application before I make my final point, and that is this. Of course, I need to ask you and me, is this, are these three things part of your public worship? Are you properly estimating the privilege and the piety necessary for acceptable New Covenant worship? If you are, then we won't come habitually late to meet God, will we? We won't be improperly clothed, overly casual. We won't be here primarily to see each other. We won't be unprepared. We won't walk in with cold hearts. We won't come in expecting not to be changed. Because we know we're coming to meet this God, 
who will be present and he is speaking and he has poured out his Holy Spirit upon us and he's here to give us grace because of the promises of the new covenant. He is not here to condemn us. This is not Sinai. We have not come to Mount Sinai, verse 18. We have come to heavenly Mount Zion. And so there is grace for us when we come with piety and thankfulness. Well, finally, there's a motive to obey these duties, to do these three things. This is found in verse 29, for our God is a consuming fire. This may be one of the most, or one of the least preached on verses in the New Testament. <laughs> I'm not sure. But you rarely hear this as a motive to obedience. But here it is. Here it is. And that's the problem with exposition. We, we don't get to cheat. We have to face every verse. <laughs> and we all have to hear the voice of God from every verse. Our God is a consuming fire. He was a consuming fire in a partial way on Sinai. Remember the description? Of course, God hasn't changed. His holy character hasn't changed. And so on Judgment Day, when he comes and speaks that final time, he will consume and renew the world through fire. Not a flood. Fire. Even now, even now, our God is... Notice the present tense, a consuming fire. He hates sin. And so he is kindly in these verses, warning us against it. And all of this points us back to where we begin. We must hear God's voice. We must believe what he says. And we must entrust ourselves to his son, whose blood cleanses us from all sin. Let's pray.